So if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard this phrase, spiritual warfare. I had someone once say to me, spiritual warfare, what does that even mean? Well, when I was a little girl, my parents had um, this prayer that they would always pray over me. And it would be, you know, protect Cheryl from things seen and unseen. Because there are the things that we see that we know are warfare. You know, that's like a mean person yelling at me or those gestures that that person in the car next to me, boy, that's warfare. But there's also this unseen where sometimes we're having these weird feelings or this repulsion and and there's something that's going on, but we can't articulate it. But it's still there, maybe even a doubt or this temptation that's coming to our mind. And we're like, wait, no, I don't even like that thing. I don't know why that's hitting me right now. Or um, my friend Nancy was saying that she walked into this furniture store. And this toothless man walks up to her and says, can I help you with something? And all of a sudden, this overwhelming like voice in her head says, kiss him. And she's like, What? And she realized, whoa, this is spiritual warfare. But it was just this craziness. And then this condemnation, you know you want to kiss him. And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm you know, going around kissing every frog to see if they turn into a prince. But that whole type of weirdness that sometimes happens that we can't explain. So spiritual warfare has to do with the visible and invisible attack that we as believers go through. Before you were a Christian... You were at enmity with God. But God allowed you to feel his conviction. And it was ultimately his kindness and his grace that brought you to salvation. It was the message that God loves you. Your enemy, God loves you. That he didn't want you to go to hell. And that he had already laid the groundwork for you to be forgiven, cleansed, saved, made his child through the cross of Jesus Christ. And not only that, that he had a storehouse of eternal blessings for you. And he would become your constant companion through this life. I mean, that was an offer that you're here because you could not refuse. But once you come to God, And you're no longer at enmity with God. You take on more enemies than you ever had before. And now your enemies are, again, they're more, but they're less powerful. However, whereas God's tactics were kindness and love, your new enemy's tactics are condemnation and cruelty and doubt and Um, threats and slander and accusation. And your new enemies are the world, this worldly system that is anti-God, your own flesh, which rises up and says, my will versus God's will, and the devil himself. Many believers have the mistaken notion That because they are born again, because they're anointed by the Holy Spirit, because they've been identified now as a child of God, all of life should be nothing but ease and blessing. I love the laughter I heard just over here because some of you are like going, right, I remember when I believed that one back in 1983. However, there can be no victory without enemies, warfare, or advancement of taking ground and moving forward. So when we talk about these enemies that we have, we we mention the devil. The very tempter of Eve is your own tempter. I think he specializes in, in coming after women. And he's the enemy of our souls. He's called slander, liar, adversary, we're told that he's the accuser of the brethren, that he's, that he's strategizing over us like a lion over his prey, looking for ways to devour or eat us up. Then 
There's the world that refuses to acknowledge Jesus Christ and the system of the world that wants to live independently of God or his influence. And then again, there's your own flesh, according to 1 Peter 2.11, that wars against your new nature in Christ. And these are your enemies. The good news is that through Christ, we have victory. We have victory. It's not that we can have victory, but we have victory. If we learn to expect warfare, recognize it when it comes, and resist it through the word of God, the will of God, and the way of God. Jesus not only won the victory, but he exemplified for us through his life how we can also claim that same victory. In Luke 3, verses 1 through 22, we see the incredible baptism of the captain of our salvation. John the Baptist was the herald of Jesus. He was the one that was prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse uh, 4 through 6, and in Malachi 4, verses uh, verse 6 and 7. He was the one that would come in the spirit of Elijah and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. He fulfilled those Old Testament prophecies. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. And we know that he set up his ministry in the Judean wilderness. He announced the coming of the Lord saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And he did this by removing the false foundations that the men and women in Israel were trusting in. First, he removed their religious positions. John called them a brood of vipers that would be subjected to the wrath to come. So they were trusting in, well, I'm religious. I've got this religious position. And John says, no, you're all a brood of vipers, all of you. Secondly, they had that claim to being related to Abraham. Like we're better than everybody else and we don't need to repent because we're actually biologically related to Abraham. And John said, no. God is able to raise up from these rocks relatives to Abraham. Your heritage, your religion will not do it for you. And finally, he told them that their ritual and religious practices, the ones that were taking place at the temple, would not avail for them. When he said, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 9. Jesus was about to put the axe to the ritual and religious system in Jerusalem. It was going to be over. Then John announced the coming of the king in, in saying that he was not worthy to even loose the sandal strap of the coming Messiah and that the coming Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire and would separate the wheat from the chaff, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning the chaff. John also, in his proclamation, put all men on level ground. Every man, no matter what his social status, economic level, culture, background, a religious practice needed a savior because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So every mountain, high person would be brought low. Every crooked path, every criminal could be made straight and every rough place would be made smooth. And John said all flesh without exception would be offered God's salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what John was doing. He was putting everyone on level ground. Again, you can't trust in the fact that you're an Israelite. You can't trust in the fact that you've been religious. You can't trust in the fact that you've done all these rituals. None of that will avail. Whether you're a high person, a medium person, or all-out criminal, you're all on the same level. You need a savior because you're a sinner. And John, we're told, was baptizing. Now, baptism in those days was usually for someone outside of the Jewish faith. They would come a Gentile and they'd say, I want to be a Jew. So what it signified is that they were dying to their old culture and coming up into a new culture or being born again. But this time as a Jew. 
So as John is baptizing Jews, because he's saying, you're outside the promises because of your sin, even though, again, you're religious, you've had ritual or you're related to Abraham, you're still outside the promises and you need to be born again. He was showing that need to be washed of the sins and come into a new life and a new start. See, John was looking forward to what Jesus would do. Today, we are baptized because we're looking back at what Jesus has done and we're born again. Now, John was a little taken back because the one that he had been heralding, the one that put everyone on level ground, the one whose sandal strap John was not worthy to lose, the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, he comes to the Jordan River and says, John, baptize me. And John says, wait a second. No, you should be baptizing me. And Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus said, John, permit it to be so for now. For it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, John, you don't understand, but this is absolutely necessary. Why? Because Jesus was identifying himself completely with mankind. As it says in Hebrews, God was making the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering or through an earthly experience. Jesus not only came to save us, but to show us how to live, to go through everything that we could possibly go through, that he might say, I know, I understand, and I'm here to help you. And so Jesus comes to be baptized. And as he comes out of the water, showing a total dedication to the Lord's will, we're told that the heavens opened and the spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, a visible sign of the reality of the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' life. And God broke the silence of heaven and identified Jesus as his beloved son. Now, nowhere else does God break the silence to say, you are my beloved son. In Daniel, when the angel Gabriel came, he said to Daniel, oh, Daniel, you are greatly beloved. But he didn't call him son. And it was an angel who brought the message. But here, God, for the first time in man's history, breaks the silence of heaven and literally shouts, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There was nothing in Jesus that didn't please God. Everything Jesus did, said, and thought absolutely pleased, blessed his father. Now, I don't think any of us can say that about our children. I love my children. But there were sometimes I was not well pleased. In fact, there were times I didn't even want people to know that was my child. Just a couple of times. But you know, I'll, especially, I had this one daughter. I still have her, actually. But I'll never forget being in Vista. And I had a friend who was very um, age conscious. She's nine months older than I am. And she was very age conscious. She just did not want to age. And she noticed that Brayden, who was two at the time, his shoe had become untied. And so she went to tie his shoe for him. And at the same time, my daughter Kelsey gets between Brayden and this lady and says, get away from my brother, you old lady. <laughs> to this day, and Kelsey was only four, she's 27 my friend still reminds me of that every time she sees me. You know, there were just certain times that you didn't want to be related to your children. I remember, and my dad adored me, but I remember being at the market with them one time. And I was about three or four. In fact, what did they say? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I turned around and I said, Dad, look at that lady. She's like the ugliest lady I've ever seen in my life. Isn't she ugly, Dad, huh? Don't you think she's ugly? I mean, she could be a wicked witch. And I remember the lady said, she looked at me, she goes, honey, I wish I could be beautiful like you, but some people just are ugly like me. 
And I'm looking at my dad like, well, she's nice at least. And my dad's just got his head down like, right now, I wish I didn't know this little girl. I wish, you know. <laughs> but there are times, and I did repent, and every time I think about it, I'm just like, oh my goodness, thank you for the grace of God. But there are times that we don't want to be associated with our children. God never had that. He was absolutely pleased and blessed with Jesus. Luke then includes the earthly lineage of Jesus that traces Mary's ancestry through King David, Abraham, all the way to Adam. Jesus had a legal, biological, and divine claim to the throne of Israel. Remember the wise men coming to Jerusalem and Matthew said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star and we have come to worship him. So there was a biological claim through Mary. There was a legal claim through Joseph. And there was the divine claim because to this end he was born to be a king. And Luke wants us to know that all that is about to transpire, all that we're about to read in chapter four is not in spite of and not despite Jesus' legal claim to the throne of David, but because of, because Jesus is like the first Adam the son of God, because of Jesus' dedication to God's plan, because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit on Jesus' life, and because the father is well pleased with the son and absolutely loves him. So we're told that following this amazing and divine scene, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Luke chapter four, verses one through 13. That this is the plan of God. This is the leading of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days without food. So he is, he is copying the children of Israel in the exodus from Egypt. He, not being 40 years, but 40 days, feeling what those people felt with the same deprivation, with the same vulnerabilities as far as there'd be scorpions, there'd be snakes, there'd be lions in that wilderness. There'd be hot days and there would be cold, dark nights. And at his weakest point, when he is hungry, Satan comes with his strongest temptations. And the ultimate temptation posed to Jesus by Satan is to prove himself. Satan begins in verse 3 of chapter 4 of Luke. If you are the son of God, if, prove it. Prove to me that you're the son of God. You know, there's nothing worse than trying to prove yourself to your enemy because he really doesn't want proof. He just wants you to look ridiculous. So Satan wants Jesus to prove his sonship, his call, his person by turning rocks to bread. He says, turn this rock to bread, fulfill yourself. Prove that you're the son of God by fulfilling your own needs, by meeting your own needs. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, recalling Israel's time in the wilderness, where according to Deuteronomy 8.3, God said, I allowed you to hunger that you might Learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus coming from that wilderness experience had learned to subsist on God's word alone. That God's word was enough. 
And so he is answering Satan, and this is what he's saying. I will not prove myself by fulfilling my needs. I will look to God's word and what God says to be the provision for all my needs. When I'm hungry, I'll go to God's word. When I'm thirsty, I'll go to God's word. When I'm feeling unloved, I'll go to God's word. When I need fulfillment, I will go to God's word. When I need strength, I will go to God's word. I will not try to fulfill myself, but I will let God's word be my fulfillment. Next, we're told that the devil in a moment transported Jesus to a high mountain. From this vantage point, all the kingdoms of the world, which were, which um, had been and would be from that time forward were visible. And Satan offers these kingdoms to Jesus saying, for this has been delivered to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. God in the beginning gave Adam rule over all the earth. God created all of nature, all of um, the animals and the flora, the fauna. And he said to Adam, This is yours. Rule over it and be blessed. But when Adam disobeyed God, when he stole from God's tree, when he disobeyed the very word of God, you shall not eat of this tree. When he did that, he forfeited all that had been given to him to Satan. How did he do that? Well, Jesus said to whomever you yield yourself to obey, his slave you are. He said that in John chapter 8, verse 34. Now, what happened with the slave? A slave lost all of his possessions to the one he obeyed. He no longer had rule over his wife or even his children. They were all sold into slavery. And now the master had rule over that. So when Adam disobeyed God, he forfeited the earth, and all the kingdoms over to Satan because Adam was now in subjection to Satan until Jesus came, the second man, the the second son of God. You see, Adam came straight from God. He was not birthed. He came from God. So Jesus also came from God. God was his father, even as as Adam had God for his father. Satan was offering Jesus the kingdoms without the cross. In effect, he's saying, you can achieve your objective without suffering. He, he was saying, it's, it's about the objective. Now, Satan does the same thing to us. He'll say, well, isn't this your objective? Isn't your objective to get married? And I know people that have married non-Christians because they think, well, later they'll get saved. The objective is to get married and then save them. No, God's got a specific way that he wants things done. Jesus says to Satan, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You see, it's about how. It's about the way. It's not just about the end objective. Worship is obedience and dedication of our entire lives to the Lord. It's also the how. Satan's final temptation, he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and it's another prove yourself, not to Satan, but to the religious elite who are there in the courtyard, Satan says, throw yourself down and let all those religious elite see the angels coming and picking you up and saving you. Prove to them that you're the son of God. And Satan quotes from Psalm 91, 11. You know, it's interesting, and I've noticed this in temptation, that Satan often has the verse right, but the wrong application. Isn't that true of the cults? They'll take a verse out of context and and they quote it right. But it's the application that is 
wrong. So Satan, quoting Psalm 91, 11, says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus answers using Deuteronomy 6.16. It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus was not taken by surprise by Satan's um, encounter with him. Jesus was led to this place in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He expected this testing and he recognized Satan when he came and he resisted how? One, by God's word, not just by quoting it, but by the fact that God's word was the authority in his life. When I was a young girl in Sunday school and we were taught about the temptation of Jesus, Often, the teacher would say, just quote the Bible. She wasn't from the South, so I don't know why I did that. But, you know, just quote the Bible and and he'll resist. But you know what I found? Satan could quote it even better back to me. That he knew God's word better than I did. And just stating scriptures or yelling scriptures to the wind didn't do any work, uh, do any good. It had to be that these scriptures were the authority by which my life was ordered. This has to be the authority of your life. Because the scripture says it, this is how I live. Secondly, he resisted the devil by God's ways. It was not just about the means to an objective. The objective was not foremost. I'll never forget. When I was a young girl again. I don't know why I'm talking about my youth. I must be feeling old today. But when I was a young girl, witnessing, it was like, oh, you need to witness, you need to witness, you need to witness, you need to witness. And you know, these works, you know, and this pressure to do works. And most of my friends were Jewish in school. And so I'm trying to tell them about Jesus. And I'm I'm eight years old. And all I know is I've got a witness. And so I lined them up against the chain link fence at this school and said, look, I don't want to have to punch you in the face, but if you don't accept Jesus, like my Sunday school teacher is telling me, I have to punch you. I'm sorry. So accept Jesus or get punched. I mean, they're like, it's the inquisition. I didn't even know what that word meant, but you know, that's what happens when you put the objective, save people instead of Lord. How do you want me to minister? What do you have for me today? Because I'm, I'm certain that the Lord did not want to sock those little girls in the face. Or to scare them into salvation. That's not God's way. Remember, as we said earlier, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. But so often we get the objective. The objective above the means in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Saul was excusing his disobedience to God by saying, well, look at all this sacrifice I'm going to give to God. I know God told me that I was supposed to wipe out the Amalekites and all of their livestock completely. But look, we've just saved it in order to sacrifice. I'm going to use this for, for, for God. It's, it's going to bring him glory. He likes these sacrifices. He'll like this. And the prophet Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey. In other words, God cares about the how. Not the objective at the end, but the how. The psalmist says that all the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. God never works outside of his mercy or his truth. He doesn't use lies for his glory because lies cannot glorify God. God cares about the way things are done. And that's what Jesus was saying to Satan. No, I'm not going to do it that way. 
There's a right way. There's God's way through this, the path that God has chosen. I was uh, reading in my devotions yesterday, I was in um, Psalm 31, and it really spoke to me. I was reading in the NLT, and the Lord is saying, let me choose the right path for you. Don't be like the horse and the donkey that have to be bridled before they'll do my will. But let me counsel you and show you the right way. See, God has a right way, a means to the end. It's not just about getting to heaven. It's about how we walk on earth toward heaven. There is a way. Finally, it's God's will. What does God want? It's that absolute obedience to the will of God, that my life is about the will of God, about worshiping him alone. Jesus said, I do always those things that please my father. In fact, in speaking of the will of God in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said that many would come in the, in the last days and approach Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we preach in your name? And he will say, depart from me because you never did the will of my father. You see, they were looking at the fruit or the objectives and saying, well, this should be enough to get us in. But it's about the will of the Father, about how God wants things done, about what God wants from our lives, and about ordering our lives by the authority of God's word. These three tools are also your tools to resisting the enemy. Again, God's word must be the authority and priority in your life. God's ways must be your directives and the how-tos. And then God's will is the ultimate objective that of all that we are to become and do with our lives. In Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, Jesus encounters another type of warfare. And perhaps you've experienced this. I remember Brian telling me that when he first got saved, he told all of his friends, everybody that he had ever known and all of his relatives, he couldn't wait to tell them about salvation through Jesus Christ and how Jesus had paid it all on the cross. Brian's life was absolutely transformed and he thought that those who knew him would see that transformation and want to get saved. But he said that the reaction that he got from family and friends was totally unexpected. Some of the members of his family absolutely <laughs> responded in anger. They were so angry at Brian. I even remember uh, Brian's mother calling us at one point and saying, you know, when you come over at Thanksgiving, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, but Brian, you know how much this is going to upset this person. And she's already so angry with you telling her that she's going to hell. So maybe Brian did a little bit of the, you know, punching against the chain link fence, but, and then there are many of his friends avoided him for years I mean, they wouldn't answer his calls. If we ran into them on Main Street in Huntington, they looked very um, uncomfortable. And one of the hardest places to recognize warfare is when it's coming from the world. Because we see the world's misery and we think that they would be anxious to hear the good news that there is a God that created them. That God loves them. And God has come up with a plan through Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to save them. Yet, men often answer this offer of God with hostility and rejection. 
After Jesus' baptism and encounter with Satan, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of this power and his message of repentance and the gospel good news traveled all throughout the Galilean region. And all those who heard him in the synagogue began to glorify him. Say, there's something here. This is amazing. In fact, we're told in Isaiah that God predicted that the Galilean region would accept Jesus. Light has dawned. Those who were in the shadow of death have come to life. But Jesus then goes to Nazareth, his hometown. This is the place where he was raised. This is the place where there were eyewitnesses that saw his wisdom, even as a child. The wisdom that we saw in chapter 2 when he was asking questions of the religious leaders and answering their questions. And they were astonished at his wisdom. This is the wisdom that those in Nazareth had seen. We're told that he was under subjection to Mary and Joseph, but that God gave him favor with other people and with himself. And those who saw Jesus could see that favor as he grew in stature. And they asked Jesus to share in the synagogue. They handed him the scroll in the synagogue Still today, every Saturday, they read a portion of the law, which would be either Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. And they read a portion from the prophets. On this day when Jesus went to Nazareth, the portion was from Isaiah 61. Now in those days, they didn't have chapters or verses. So the scroll would just be open to a certain portion. And it was that portion of scripture from Isaiah 61 that reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What an offer. What an invitation. Jesus then rolled the scroll back and said, today, today, right now, this is fulfilled in your eyes. Right now is the day of salvation. Right now, you can have everything that this passage is offering. Jesus was fully identifying as himself as the Messiah, the one who had come. Now they had heard that he had done miracles all throughout the Galilean region. They were anxious to hear him. They wanted to see him. In fact, Luke tells us that they bore witness to him. That they said, yes, he's divine. He's got wisdom. He's incredible. And they marveled at his gracious words. They, they were drawn in. They were mesmerized, so to speak. And yet, Jesus could read their hearts. And he knew. He knew that what they really wanted to do was to use him, naturalize him, and capitalize on his giftings. He said, you will surely say to me, this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard, done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. You see, they wanted a miracle worker. They wanted a genie. What they didn't want was a savior. And when we bring this message to the world, what is the objection of the world to this message? Don't try to change my life. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. I just want the miracles. I just want God to answer all my prayers. I, you know, I, I want him to move the traffic, give me good parking places, you know, enrich my life financially, but tell me I'm a sinner and want me to serve him and call him Lord. 
I don't think so. I don't care what he's offering. I don't want that offer. I want him to fulfill my offer, right? This is what I want. This is the world, the system of the world. They want all the benefits of God. They want his reign. They want his provision. They want his blessing, but they don't want his lordship. Jesus then, from scripture, illustrates how that the first recipients of the gospel do not receive it because of their pride and their familiarity and because of their own desires. Jesus spoke about two Gentiles who benefited from the ministry of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Now, Elijah and Elisha lived, both lived in Israel. And at that time, the the kings of Israel were never godly. They were all idolatrous. All the kings of Israel, after the kingdom was divided into Judah and Israel, all the kings of Israel were bad. No good ones. All idolaters. And yet, these incredible prophets... Elijah and Elisha were both raised up in this secular kingdom, idolatrous kingdom of Israel. Now, while the kingdom of Israel, under the leadership of King Ahab, was dealing with famine and drought, God sent his prophet Elijah to a Syrophoenician widow in a place called Zarephath. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 17. And there God sustained this woman with oil and flour throughout all the hard years of famine. Now Israel and the people in Israel are not being sustained. It's hard. Many are starving to death. But this, this woman who is a Gentile, Because she believed the prophet Elijah. And the word of the Lord through the prophet Elijah. She is sustained through this famine. Then Jesus points out another Gentile. A Syrian. Who was actually um, at one point an enemy of Israel. But he hears about the prophet Elisha. Now, no one in in Israel is going to Elisha. They're upset with Elisha because he's calling them sinners, among other things. But this Syrian hears about Elisha from a little Jewish captive who says, Oh, I wish there was a prophet in Syria like the one in Israel, because then my master could be healed. So Naaman goes to Israel, takes this journey because of this little captive Israeli girl. And he finds the prophet Elisha. And the prophet Elisha says, go and dip seven times in the Jordan River and you will be cleansed. Well, the prophet Elisha does not even come out to meet with Naaman. And Naaman is at first very upset. How dare this prophet not even acknowledge me? I'm a dignitary And we have better rivers in Syria than that muddy old Jordan. And then one of Naaman's companions says, Naaman, if he had asked you to do some noble deed, would you have done it? Naaman was like, yes. He says, but this is is so easy. Just try it. Dip seven times in the Jordan. And when Naaman went to the Jordan River, dipped seven times when he came out, he was clean. The leprosy was gone. But Jesus points out there were many lepers in Israel, and none of them were clean. In fact, the only person we have in the Old Testament to ever be cleansed of leprosy was a Gentile who believed the prophet Elisha and the word of the Lord through him and obeyed 
that word. The implication is clear. Jesus is saying that Gentiles who believe and come under the authority of the word of God are blessed more than those who have been raised with the word but don't have it as an authority, who refuse to come under the authority of the word of God. Well, this absolutely enraged the hometown folks. And they took Jesus to the precipice at the edge of Nazareth. And they were about to push him off. But Jesus simply walked through their midst, left the town and those people to themselves. Years ago, I was in um, Hawaii. And I do meet years ago. I'm still talking about my childhood here. And... Uh, my dad was speaking at some church and that night they were showing a Billy Graham movie with Johnny Cash. And at this point, Johnny Cash kind of stands on different places in Israel. And he's talking about this story and it shows these people, you know, pushing uh, the actor who was playing Jesus up to the precipice. And, And Johnny Cash says, and they wanted to kill him, but he got away. And I just love that. He got away. He just, you know, such a cowboy term, but it got away. I, I don't know why, but that has just stayed with me. But it got away. In fact, it became something that we used to say in our, in our house. But it got away. I don't know why. How did Jesus handle the rejection in Nazareth after speaking the truth to them? After giving them this incredible offer, he simply left them to themselves. He didn't strive to convince. Again, he didn't try to prove himself or even prove the offer. He didn't fight with them. He simply left them with the gospel offer. And he continued on to do the will of God. Every believer at some time will suffer rejection. Every believer. We should expect it, recognize it, and resist striving to convince, arguing, trying to prove ourselves. We should simply give the invitation and leave it with those people. We are not to be distracted or sidetracked from doing God's will. In verses 31 through 44, Jesus returns to Capernaum. And one of the hardest things that happens as a believer happens to Jesus. One of the things besides being tempted, besides being rejected, is to come into confrontation with gaping need. There is something so disconcerting about seeing gaping need and feeling our own humanity. We want to do something. We either want to turn it off, run away from it, hide from it, or, or try to, to heal it, fix it. Especially we as women, we're fixers. We want to fix all the world's problems. That's why some of you have even little miniature toolkits in your purses. You're going to fix it because we're fixers. That's what we do by nature. And when we come into this gaping need, we want to fix it. Jesus did not run from need. He faced it and he went among it. And he worked in it. And that's what we see here in Capernaum. Jesus, as his custom was, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as he was speaking, a man possessed by a demon loudly interrupts, let us alone or go away. Because that's the spirit behind the rejection. And then this demon speaking through this man says, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus is not taken off guard. I think about sometimes how you'll be at church and somebody will do something 
really wild. I'll never forget back in that area. I'm not saying you're wild or you're that person. But I remember one time my dad was preaching and this woman stood up and started, said, I can't take it anymore and started to pull off her top in front of everybody. And I was sitting back here with my mom and my mom's like, come on, Cheryl, let's stop that. I'm like, I don't know about you, mom, but I'm staying put. (laughs) In fact, I'm always holding her back. And Brian, seeing this, he was up on the stage with that. He goes, he literally leaps over the stage. It was third service, goes running back there. And now there's six ushers and Brian, and they're trying to get this woman out, but she's locked her feet. See, there's a lot of things that go on here that you don't even know about. She's locked her feet in to, this is um, when we saw abuse, and she's locked her feet and she's screaming really loudly. And they're all trying. Finally, they all heave her up above their heads and carry her out the door. And about that time, my mom goes running around, making me follow. But, you know, the thing I was going to say is, was dad less anointed third service than he was first and second? My dad. Chuck. Was Chuck less anointed third service than he was first and second? No. But, but I, I feel that there are times because the Spirit of the Lord is with us that demons are going to identify themselves. Sometimes maybe you felt like the weirdo magnet before. I feel like that magnet. You know, come unto me all you who are possessed and awful and weird. I'll never forget walking with my mom, we were at um, the Carlsbad Mall and we turned a corner down by Sears and it was kind of dark and there was a guy there and he looked at my mom and he goes, hello there. And my mom says, hello. And he says, some people wouldn't say hi to me. And she said, really, why is that? He said, because I just got out of prison. And she said, well, what were you in prison for? And he said, murder. And she said, well, if you want people to be nice to you, you shouldn't murder. Come on, Cheryl. (laughs) <laughs> we get around the corner and she looks at me and she goes run <laughs> she was like so calm now I wish I could say that that was an isolated event with my mother but those things happened a lot but, but what my point is that because of the spirit of the Lord on our lives not because we're weirdo magnets But because of the spirit of the Lord, there are times that evil is just going to expose itself. People are going to become irate. I remember another time being at the market and this man just slamming his cart into me for no reason. I looked at him and I said, can I help you? And he looked at me and he took his cart back and he rammed it into into my cart again. And, And I said, sir, are you all right? And he took his cart and he rammed it again. And I thought, you know what? I think I'll just leave the market right now. I don't, I don't really need groceries or food. Brian should take me out to dinner and the whole family. So I just left. But, you know, there are times that these weird things are going to happen to us. And, you know, when weird things happen to you, don't you feel like you must be weird? Like we forget the warfare. Like, whoa, I forgot how much the devil hates me. I forgot that I'm light and light exposes darkness and that people get angry when light enters the room. And this is what happened. This, this demon had to expose himself. Now, those who see this, who are in the synagogue, are amazed and impressed by the authority and power of Jesus. And they begin to spread the news about his authority and power throughout the whole region. Then Jesus leaves the synagogue and he goes to Peter's house. And right away, he's confronted with another need. This time, it's Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick. She's got a fever. She can't get up. And they tell Jesus immediately. Jesus goes, takes her hand, speaks to her, and she is healed immediately and begins to serve the Lord. Well, it's the Sabbath day. Jesus has been speaking in the synagogue. Remember, people aren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. 
But as night falls and the sun sets and the Sabbath is over, all of a sudden, Peter's whole house is surrounded by the maimed, the sick, the diseased, the leprous, and the demon-possessed. Talk about night of the zombies, right? I mean, can you imagine looking out and seeing that? What, what is Peter looking out at? Gaping need. Gaping need. The, the sick, the, the ailing, the hurting, those who cannot help themselves. And there they all are, right outside of Peter's door. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, hey, lower the blinds, pretend I'm not here. Let's just go quiet and they can knock, but we'll just like, there's nobody here. You know? No. Jesus goes right out into that need. Right out into that need. And he begins to heal and deliver and cleanse. And we're told that all of them, everyone was touched and transformed by Jesus. All of them. Those who were demon-possessed were delivered. Those who were maimed were made whole. Those who were leprous were cleansed. Those who were diseased were healed. Those who were lame were able to walk. Those who were blind were able to see. Whatever the need, Jesus was able to meet it. You see, as believers, another thing that happens is we are confronted by this gaping need. And because we can't fix it ourselves, We want to turn away from it or we want to get angry with God because there's need in the first place. But what are we to do? Just give them Jesus. Give them Jesus. You know what? You are weak and people don't need your advice. I'm just speaking to myself right now. You know, I will do these prayer times and people come up and the needs are so gaping and so real and so big. But let me tell you this. I am not a doctor, so I can't, I'm not a pathologist. I can't tell you what's wrong with you physically or tell you what to do. I'm not a a therapist, so I can't tell you what good exercises to do. I'm not a nutritionist, so I can't tell you what vitamins to take. In fact, I might tell you the wrong vitamins, so don't listen to me. I'm not a, a financial wizard, so I can't tell you what to do if you're impoverished or poor. I don't have money myself, so I can't give you rent. I, I have nothing to offer you. I, I can't do it. I, I teach the Bible. This is what I do. But more than that, no. But this thing I can do, I can go empty. I'm really, really good at empty. And I can become a conduit for Jesus to touch you. And that's what he wants from all of us just to become conduits so he can leave our house and go in the midst of need and touch and do what only Jesus can do. We don't need to be afraid of gaping need. We don't need to run from it or hide from it, nor do we need to try to fix it with our intellect or with our finances or, you know, whatever. We just need to bring Jesus to it. That is all we need to do. The next day they searched for Jesus, but Jesus had departed to a deserted place to pray. The crowd wants to keep him from leaving. There is so much need in Capernaum. They're like, wait, we've got friends. We've got cousins. We've got relatives. Stay here. We want to keep you all to ourselves. And there's enough human need right here. Like John set up in the Judean wilderness. He was just in one place. Everyone had to come to him. Jesus just set up base here in Capernaum. But Jesus says that he had to go to other places and preach the kingdom of God in other cities because for this purpose, he was sent. In other words, Jesus stayed the course to the will of God. Sometimes we mistake the need for the call. Because there's need or they they really want us in some place, we think, oh, this must be the place that God has for me. Look at all this need. I could stay busy for years. But the need is not the call of God. 
The call of God is the call of God. When we were in Vista and we were being called to England, I remember these people coming to us. And, and let me say this. Our church in Vista was about 3,000 people. We had a school. We had a bookstore. To me, this is what makes you a Calvary success, right? And we had just opened up a coffee shop. That said, we were totally blessed. In fact, we were just opening it up the week that we left. I never even got to have a cup of coffee from that coffee shop. And I remember people coming up saying, Cheryl, I heard you and Brian are thinking about England. Do not go to England. We need you here in Vista. I know they love you in England, but we need you. We need you. We need you here. And we knew that the call was in England. Yet when we got to England, you know, here we had a church of 3,000 and we're going to church and we're like jumping up and down because eight people showed up counting their children. We were like so, that's not counting ours. If you add our family of six, we had, you know, whatever, six and eight, 14. (laughs) But the need is not the call. And Jesus said, I have to go to other cities. I'm going to stay on course for the call of God. My life is not determined by need, but by the will of God. We can so get sidetracked by the need rather than the will of God. And we need to stay on course. Finally, in summation of everything, we have been baptized into Christ. We've been born again. We've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. We've been identified as the daughters of God. But because we are the daughters of God, because we are anointed, because God has a purpose for our life, we are going to have warfare. If Jesus, the captain of our salvation, was not spared from warfare, we will not be spared from warfare. But he has given us his word. He has given us his way. And he has shown us his will. And it's through his word, his ways, and his will that we can not only survive warfare, but we can thrive and grow and advance the kingdom of God and take territory in Jesus' name and power. We will encounter temptation, strong temptation that will often say, prove yourself, prove that God really loves you, prove that the Lord is with you, prove that you're a child of God. And you say, no, I'm just going to stand under in the authority and under the authority of the word of God. You're going to have opposition in the way of rejection People that you thought would receive the gospel more than anybody else who you thought would be anxious to hear because of their condition, their sickness, their illness will reject you and will reject the gospel. And you will come up against gaping need. Needs so great that you'll be tempted to stay and just plant yourself or you'll be tempted to run away from it and hide or you'll be tempted to try to fix it yourself. Gaping need or even to get angry with God. Like, God, why did you allow this need? And the answer to all of these things again is to be under the authority of God's word to do things God's way, not your own way. Don't go rogue. And to stay on course with the will of God. This is the way to the greatest resistance against the power of the flesh, the world, and the devil. This is how we not only win the battle, this is not only how we conquer through Christ, but this is how we thrive. This is how we take 
the land. This is how we are victorious and go forward. Learn from the captain of our salvation who was tried and tempted yet without sin. Be strengthened in his word. Learn his ways and come into the full knowledge of his will. Expect warfare, recognize warfare, but resist it again through God's word, God's ways, and God's will. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray over you because that's a lot to take in. Lord, here's my beautiful sisters who have been born again into you, who have been anointed by the Spirit, who have been identified as your daughters. Lord, there is warfare. They're either in warfare, feeling warfare, or about to face warfare. Lord, I pray that you would make them all able soldiers. Lord, that you would show them the greatness of their equipping. Lord, that you would give them, Lord, the sword of the Spirit and show them how to wield it with precision. Lord, that their feet would be prepared with the gospel of peace, Lord, that they would stay in your path and in your way and they would not be sidetracked or moved to any other path. Lord, we pray that they would do things your way, Lord Jesus, the way of love and mercy and truth, Lord, that they would be absolutely girded with the truth, Lord, that they would wear the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of your righteousness, Lord, that they wouldn't try to fix it on their own, but they would allow you to fix it. And most of all, Lord, that they would hold up the shield of faith, Lord over and over again, knowing that you are more than able as the captain of our salvation to win every battle, to put out every fiery dart that comes against us. Lord, these are your daughters. You are calling them right now, beloved. You are identifying them as your own. So Lord, equip them, bless them, strengthen them, open your word to them, keep them in your ways, Lord. And hold them tightly to your will. I ask this in Jesus' name.